Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our, I think, sixth episode for the year. Um, yes. We'll correct that otherwise. And uh, we are going to talk about what it is almost impossible not to talk about. The events, the invasion, the aggression, the attack, the war in Ukraine. It's its one of those things that I did not think that I would live to see. War in Europe in our time. And its it's terribly... It's terribly sad, and it's a human tragedy, and it's in many ways, I think, one of the one of the darkest moments in Europe's history for a very, very long time. Um, we we will talk specifically about some tech policy aspects of this, but first, Richard, we should just recognize the gravity of the moment, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those moments where you feel um, desperately sad and. I, th- I think if we're trying to k- keep this family friendly, uh, flipping furious that this should happen. I mean, it, it, it's like it's anger. I, I kind of feel sadness, but I also feel an enormous anger at yeah. the, 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 you know, the Russian government that Putin would dare do something like this and now unleash this whole train of destruction, obviously, firstly, for people in Ukraine, but then beyond obviously, that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, as we're going to talk about today, is this sort of, rippling across the world here we are tr- trying to recover from a pandemic and and in a sense this incredibly selfish man let's you know use that as a, like, like this person sitting there going like you know here's my obsession here's what i want to do and it's a person who commands this in, incredible amount of power uh and there's a lot of you know we've all moved on from being sort, sort of pop uh, uh epidemiologist to being sort, sort of pop psychologist but but there's something uh, I think in an, a really old maxim, which is um, from a guy called Baron Acton, which is that uh, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, yes. And, and you, that's, I think, what we're seeing here. It's, again, it's not about this man being Russian. I don't think it's actually about him being particularly unique. I think it's about him being a person who has had absolute power and become absolutely corrupt. And 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 damn the rest of the world, you know, damn all of us, damn everybody in Ukraine, damn everybody else. It's it's his corruption now that is dominating our lives. Yeah, and I, I really I think the point about anger is so spot on. It's a it's it's a deep set anger that somebody would would do this to the world and you know create all of this unnecessary pain and unnecessary suffering and it's it's just it's just bizarre. So having said that up front um, and having. I mean, I, I really, it's unspeakable, the kind of terrors and tragedy that the Ukrainian people is going through and, and their, their heroism in, in the face of this is, is, is stunning. So I think in, in many ways, um, it, it's almost hard to get into the nitty gritty, but it's also important to take this time to reflect how it actually ripples, to your point, how it ripples through the rest of the fabric of society. And our particular uh, expertise, if we have one, is around tech policy and and platforms. And there's been a ton of movement when it comes to platforms uh, following the invasion of Ukraine. So give, give us uh, an overview of, of what has happened, sort of give us a sense of, of what the reaction is and what you think let's speculate a little bit about the basis of the reaction to how much of this is is driven by by you know a necessity because sanctions have been legislated and how much of this is driven by a sentiment that this is the right thing to do yeah i, th- I think in a sense that the scale of the response has taken everyone by surprise I, I, again i didn't expect the response to be quite so uniform and and quite so serious. And what we've tended to see in the past, for various reasons, is 
sort of more mealy mouth responses to situations like this, and that may be partly because people have have vested interests. It, it may be partly uh, because they're trying, uh, as always, is the case to to come up with some solution where they're not setting a precedent for other. You know, so, so they become paralysed in the moment because they're worried about precedents for future situations and you know, yeah, you know, all this sort of what aboutery and what about if this happened and that happened. But in this instance, actually, you've seen everyone move very quickly, um, and that's everything from the big stuff like the SWIFT banking system. Where, where this interbank system again, there was a lot of what aboutery. Well, if if we disrupt the international banking system for this particular set of circumstances, what will happen if we, you know, some other uh, invasion takes place where perhaps there isn't the same uniformity of response? What if Russia moves to using the Ch- Chinese bank system? Some, but no, uh, people said let's get on with it. And I think we've seen something similar in tech. And and yes, I think it may be helpful for people to understand some of those dynamics. I mean, if we we were still in those respective platforms, we'd be working through this now. But say up front, I'd say I'm amazed at how quickly the platforms have responded and how comprehensively. But that's in a context where, fortunately, you know, the entire uh, economic activity across countries outside of Russia, at least Western Europe and the United States and countries like Australia and Canada, so on, you know, that they are, they are responding uniformly across all the economic sectors and tech is playing its part. It's not trying to be exceptional, which is what, you, again, you may have seen in the past where tech, we go, oh, we're different, we're special, but no, they're playing their part and they're stopping things. And it's a combination of things you are required to do by law and and we should explore this question of sanctions because that's a really interesting area of law and how that impacts tech companies and things that companies have chosen to do voluntarily even though they're not required to do so by law because they want to take a stand they are taking a, a a moral position based on their understanding of what's happening and saying look i cannot do business with russia as long as russia is putting its armed forces into a peaceful democratic neighboring country and that that is quite interesting how they've gone much further than is strictly required by law. And I think I think it's ab- what you're saying is absolutely central, especially this piece where it's um, it's a unique state. It's sort of an exceptional state, and everybody recognizes this from large companies like retailers or banks or or other really uh, large companies to smaller companies that have decided that they no longer want to to do business with Russia. So, so we're what we're looking at here is is is, is a very specific kind of response. It's a response to that singular case in which there is there is no reservation about making the decisions that one feels needs to be made. And I think that's that's really interesting. Yet still, we'll come back to a couple of examples of of decisions that that have given pause to people and have given rise to discussion. But for for the for the major part of this, I think we should recognize that the discussion piece it was really short. It yes. was should we or should we not do this? And then it was immediately implemented. Let's let's go through a couple of things mm. what happens. Let's yeah. let's start with um why don't we start so, with app stores, for example? App yeah. stores is a good place to start as any. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So if we look, there's, there's a mixture of things going on. So, so what the sanctions do is they say you must not do business with named individuals and organisations. And so, there's a certain amount of response that's taking place. So, for example, if somebody has an app in an app store and they're associated with a sanctioned individual, then you know this is kind of well-established law. You just have to uh, take that app out. You can't allow them to do business through your platform. 
Um, it, uh, on the other hand, there are, so there are those, there are those sanctioned individuals. And then there are organizations like um, RT, that used to be called Russia Today, and Sputnik, these news media outlets that have apps in the app stores, and they they are not necessarily uh, a subject of sanctions, but they are seen to be pumping out pro-Russian government propaganda, and therefore there's a very strong desire to limit or rather, I mean, they, they can still exist, but for, for one to be not facilitating their uh, route to get their lies, frankly, their, their uh, um, false messages out to people. And so they, in many cases, are being re- removed. And that, that's often a geographical removal. So so they those apps may not be available in a particular geographical area. Where it's a sanctioned individual, you've got to take them out worldwide. Like, because you, you know, yeah. you can't let these people make money. Where it's a, you know, we, we want to limit the proper Propaganda from this organization, it may well follow a, a geographical uh, uh, determination. So, for example, the European Union has said, we are banning RT and Sputnik, and therefore, whether you're YouTube hosting the videos or you're an app store making the, the apps available, there is a, an expectation that you, you remove all those routes to market. The app stores yeah. themselves are still functioning. Uh, and there's another debate, uh, and, and I think some pressure actually from the Ukrainian government. We should say this, that... that Again, just for people to understand that, if you're in a company right now, a tech company, there's just this cacophony of voices coming at you asking you to do things, and you're having to work with them and respond to them. And and you can imagine that you know you're a tech company, and somebody from the Ukrainian government who is is literally sitting under shell fire in Kiev is saying to you, "Look, I I really want you to do this thing." You know, that's something you have to respond to, something you take seriously. Um, but but sometimes there may be things that you don't want to rush into. Um, so some things you can do very quickly, other things you may want to take your time over. And I think one of those is whether you pull the app stores all together. Uh, because obviously by pulling an app store all together from a market, you're potentially making it more difficult for people to get the good apps <laughs> as well as the bad apps. So, so there's this choice of, you know, do, do you make the app store completely unavailable? That sends a very strong signal that you're now uh, isolated um, as a country. Or do you make it available, but just with the good apps, if I can put it that way, in it and the bad apps taken out? So the kind of apps that people use to get good information and connect with each other are still available through the app store. Let's let's sort of talk through how we would have reasoned about this. Uh, what, what sort of the the divisions of the categories, the, the ways that we would talk about? It. I think one really important thing to realize is that the the first category of things that you look at are things where the company makes money, and so you will essentially say, you know, do we want to make money out of this market with these actors? And so you saw advertising bans for. Uh, for some of the Russian actors, that's uh, right. come quite early. That that decision, I think, was probably one of the easier to make. We don't want to make money from uh, what we perceive to be an aggression and be advertising the services that we consider to be propaganda. That that sort of came fairly early. The harder category of decisions seems to be the one that impact regular people on the ground, consumers, users, Russian users, for example. So that's a much harder decision. And that's where we come into the notion of, you know, should we ban the app store? Should we should we cut this com- country completely off? And so how they, walk us through the balancing equation. What are the interests on the opposite sides here that you need to think about uh, as you yeah. come to that second category? I mean, so, so th- th- I think the primary argument for the ban is, is, uh, and this is tough, we want to make life difficult. We want people in Russia to feel this is not normal. So as a result of the flying bans, 
you know, anyone in Russia who had a holiday booked is now they're not going to get their holiday. You know, uh, uh, so anybody who wanted to buy the latest iPhone because Apple has banned the sales of iPhone, not going to get it. Microsoft is banning selling its uh, services into Russia. So if you wanted to use the Microsoft online packages, you will feel it. So, so the reason for banning is essentially, you know, is a way of making people in Russia feel uh, some loss in in return for the fact they've invaded Ukraine. And and again, to create the pressure to say, if you want all these things back again, if you want holidays and iPhones and software and services, then the only way you're going to get it back is by pulling out of Ukraine and by stopping your war. Um, so I think that's the general sort of consumer economic boycott case. And of, of course, you know, with people like Microsoft, it affects businesses as well. But that's the broad case. The case on the other side, I mean, one is, you know, why do ordinary people have to suffer because of their government? Uh, and there's, I think, something to that. But again, if if you if your understanding is that President Putin is is absolutely corrupted through the power that he has, there is no solution other than that President Putin ceases to be in power. And, and therefore, if you take that logic, then things which... Um, uh, uh, kind of create tension with ordinary citizens and make ordinary citizens feel that their president is harming their interests because he is he is the one who is causing others to restrict services to them. Then, then again, that amount of pain of not being able to buy the goods and services you you might argue is is legitimate. It's a legitimate way of putting pressure on. Well, it it would seem more legitimate just to sort of pressure test that idea. It would seem more legitimate if there was a democratic mechanism for them to unseat him. Uh, but I don't right. think that we believe that there is a democratic mechanism whereby which people who feel this pain can exercise their judgment and remove Putin from power. So, so the there's a, there's a slightly tenuous relationship there between the the idea that ordinary people should feel this pain as to take, you know, the measures they can in order to remove Putin, isn't there? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, the, uh, what Putin has done is successfully slice away at all the democratic means. So again, this, you know, you know people in power for a long time become corrupt uh, because they no longer fear removal from power. And we talked about it, uh, I, I think we should be rebranding elections. The notion of election is you choose your leader. I think rebranding them as ejections, like the <laughs> real power of going out and voting is that you remove a leader. It is your way of yeah. remove them. And it's absolutely true that, you know, what Putin's done and other leaders of his type do, uh, um, uh, they, what they do is they kind of successively remove those opportunities. There is a tiny sliver left in Russia. There are still elections. There are still people in opposition. They get thrown in jail, as uh, Alexei Navalny has been. That they, if they go out in the streets, they get put in jail, and they have this awful thuggish police force that will take people away. But uh, you know, there is still technically a constitution that does allow for other parties to stand the election. So it's it's nearly that. It's the smallest smallest possible window. But but again. Even so, if there were mass demonstrations and and if the will of the people did change significantly against President Putin, I mean that's the only way he's ever going to get removed. And and so you kind of have to look for that to happen, however difficult it is, because of the actions he's taken to to slice away at the 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 power, the democratic power that people have. Um, but we need an ejection of some kind, yeah. uh, and arguably there is a strong case to say the economic sanctions will will help drive that forward. On the other side, I mean, the case against it, it is primarily one of, uh, in a sense, freedom of expression. And it's really, this is a freedom of expression story in a sense. Like the, the reason that I think we 
we see Ukraine as healthy is that in Ukraine there is freedom of expression that are elections you know it's, it's chosen the path where you can stand up and you go my leader is a dickhead and like that's really important like that's what matters and then yeah. you see in Russia a country where you can't do that like you know I can say Boris Johnson is a dickhead I can go out in the street and I can shout that and in Ukraine you can say that about President Zelensky if you disagree with him you can't do that in Russia so 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 things that limit speech <laughs> feel wrong when it's a battle between countries that permit free speech and a country that suppresses free speech so that's really the primary argument that's that's that does cause you pause for thought about limiting any anything i think you can make a a strong case to say look you know uh you've talked about it before the right to reach and the right to speech so rt and sputnik still exist what the platforms are saying is we're not going to help them get there out to people but we're not muzzling them rt can say president putin is is a demigod he's the best president we've ever had and no one is stopping them saying that all they're all they're doing is saying we're not going to facilitate you in in putting that forward um but if you took out general purpose platforms if you if you took out all of the social media platforms clearly speech would suffer dramatically and arguably you know president putin wins if you can no longer go to an app store and download a, a messaging app or a social media app, what are you left with for your news? You're left with the television, which in Russia is entirely government propaganda. And so the, the primary argument for keeping app stores and things up is that these are the vehicles that people use to 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 enhance their speech because it's the place that they use to get to tools that either allow them peer-to-peer speech or allow them good sources of information. So you need, I think, one way to... F- frame this is to say that you want to make sure that there's a path that doesn't just lead to North Korea, that you don't just end up in a situation where everything is centered around the leader and there is like no internet, there's no alternative media, there's no mobile phones, nothing. And if you if you're serious about changing a country or helping a country change itself, or if you're serious about asking the citizens of that country to reconsider, you need to make sure that there are paths that allow them to do that. So there's there's something around that that seems important. Uh, but there is also this question then um, of, of whether or not you want to be at all involved in the economy mm. of a country that has invaded a democracy, a non-democratic country that has invaded a democracy. And that, that seems to be a... a that seems to be guiding quite a lot of the thinking right now, this question yeah. of, do I want to be associated with this? That kind yes. of thing. That's right. And, and again, I think that, that that works at two levels. So so there is a level around the state-related entities. And there, I think the decision is relatively straightforward. I do not want to be economically involved. There's actually there's a really interesting debate in the UK at the moment that um, uh, a lot of local government buys its gas from Gazprom, the, the Russian gas provider. Uh, and they're actually asking the government to give them guidance on, you know, do they, because Gazprom offered the cheapest gas and the way that normal tendering rules work in the European Union to be fair and not corrupt is you have to buy the person who offers you the cheapest product you can't buy you know unless there's very good reason uh, it's an open fair tendering process and here's been Gazprom going into op- open fair tendering processes and coming up with the cheapest gas and winning so now we kind of want to change the rules to not do business with people like Gazprom or RTE or any of these sort of state-owned banks or major companies I think that's relatively straightforward. We can say, yes, we want to pull out. There's another bit, though, in our tech space that I think is is perhaps more complex, which is there are lots and lots of small developers. They're, 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 you know, they're yeah. friends of the people in Silicon Valley. There's the equivalents in Russia. And a lot of those use the online platform. So question, 
if a, a, a small independent games developer uh, is somewhere in in Russia who is, you know, not in any way supportive or associated with the government, is dependent on your platform to get people to buy their games, and that's what they live off. Uh, like, do you punish them as well? I think that's going to be a harder set of questions. So, you, I think you get maybe three buckets actually. First bucket is people who are explicitly named in sanctions. That's really easy. Like, if you do business with them, you go to jail. And, and uh, I know you must have been in these conversations. It's taken really, really seriously. If there is a yes, you know, sanctions are are, like, are. I think it's a it's a one of the red lines that that are yeah, yeah. they're absolute. They're completely absolute. You you can't do business with sanctioned individuals, organizations, or countries. And it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. So don't do it. And then they say there's these sort of state entities that may not necessarily be formally sanctioned, although in some cases it looks like you can kind of reasonably predict that they will be. And therefore, you know, uh, you A, don't want to do business with them because they're close to the state, and B, maybe from a defensive position, if you're going to end up withdrawing from the business anyway, why not just get on with it now? And then I say there's a third bucket, which would be more sort of the Russian non-governmental or SME type sector. Uh, And Mm. there, I think probably you have a lot more sympathy with them as individuals and and you've got a lot more questions about whether or not you should withdraw. Uh, But I would say there's a sort of parallel debate going on in other areas, in in sport, in culture, in academia, you know, the extent to which uh, uh, you should withdraw links from people you their colleagues, their friends, their people you know to be good and decent people who happen to be in Russia, should you be withdrawing joint, those kind of joint projects? Like, where do you stop from sanctioned individuals through government entities into the, the, the sort of long tail of private individuals? And right now, I think the answer to that question is you don't. You don't stop. And I think that's a, it's in the nature of these things that you have this really uh, quite massive, comprehensive reaction to start with. And then you have to start to sort out what are the nuances. But, but uh, what we're seeing now is, is, in a sense, a total disassociation yes. from anything Russian. And, and I, think that's, I, I think that's interesting. And I think one of the hard questions that will come up is, how, if we at some point want to back out of this, do we back out of this? Uh, if you're platforms, you know, you have decided to do all these things. At what point do you reverse the measures that you have put in place? Is it yeah. is it enough for the war to be over? If Russia still invades and occupies Ukraine? Uh, the fact that armed fighting has stopped, is that the point at which you reverse? I think there's going to be a... a so there are a lot of really hard discussions now, but they're short because everyone is on the same page and it's an exceptional moment in history. And people tend to make uh, really sort of fast decisions. And I think they're making robust decisions. But how do you back out of this later? I mean, yeah. what do you think? I, mean, I think about, I, I think it will require, well, I think two things happen. I think for um, uh, governments and others, uh, I think it will require something formal like a UN resolution that, that, or UN-sponsored peace agreement, that there is something that Ukraine and Russia have both signed up to. Um, so I think that's required. And sadly, you know, based on where we are today, that could be years away. And so I think for the the sort of former intergovernmental stuff, potentially uh, th- these relationships are broken for years to come. Uh, I hope and that's sanctions wrong. obviously are as formal, right? So they are the and formal sanctions were part of that unsanctioning. Yeah, that is very rarely used, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's that long longish process. And I say, let's let's just pray and hope that uh, you know this is weeks or months that there is some 
deal that can be made and can be signed off. But I think you need that formality. But you're right to ask, you know, for businesses, if this doesn't, if the new normal is that there is no peace deal, there's an ongoing conflict, they will need to decide. And you can see, again, again, predict ahead, we're some way off, but maybe, you know, looking at businesses individually. And so I think we saw some of that in the cultural uh, sector recently where uh, um, some of the cultural stars, particularly in opera, have been asked and music have been asked to to make clear whether their position is that they support or disavow President Putin. And, uh, and uh, there's one uh, opera singer and there's a conductor who who have refused to disavow President Putin and have lost their jobs. And, and you can imagine, again, interesting new set of ethical dilemmas, but one option for certainly a platform uh that's that's offering people a voice it, it would be a sort of loyalty test to the russian regime if you're prepared to disavow the russian regime and say not in your name then that may be a condition of coming back onto the platform if we're in a long-term scenario so it opens up a whole world of questions about power of platforms and so on but that is one potential solution if if you get to a position where look this is going to be the next new normal for the next five years and yes, there are people in Russia who are quite legitimate, who who actually you want to build up. You want them to be able to do business and gain resources because they're funding the opposition, you know. Um, and, and, and so keeping them off the platform for five years would feel perverse. And what you also want is the next generation not to grow up with a unipolar uh, information space in which there's only one information giver. Currently, there's a plan in Russia to teach kids in school about uh, the uh, necess necessity of freeing Ukraine from the Nazis. There's there's like this there's this targeted lesson plan being rolled out in schools. And so you obviously at some point want to think about how do we reach the next generation so this is not entrenched from generation to generation, the, the kind of thing we're seeing now, the tension, the the the, the, the thinking, the, the imperialistic mindset that we see now. How do we stop that? So there's there's something there that that is really interesting. And I think it's it's interesting for, for several reasons. One one particular thing I wanted to ask you about that I noticed was that Microsoft announced that they would not be selling their uh, products in Russia and they it would not make their services available. Um, but as they were doing that, they also said that they wouldn't update existing software. That to me is really, really interesting because yeah. that seems to suggest something very different from saying we will not make this particular app available. Because once you start doing that, if you think in information security terms, that has a very different effect, doesn't it? It does. And and I guess it's sort of functionally equivalent to, you know, the the a lot of the aeroplane manufacturers are not sending spare parts uh for aeroplanes and so on. So it will degrade the the infrastructure degrades over time. Unpatched software degrades over time, just as unmaintained airplanes degrade over time. Uh, to the point where you hope they won't any longer be used because people should not be using unsafe equipment. But that is quite bold. And Microsoft's statement from Brad Smith actually was very vocal in terms of, as well, the language that they used about about the Russian president. I mean, the, there's no way back, I think, in terms of their relationship with the Putin administration. Uh, they've been very, very uh, sort of explicit and blunt in the language that they use, which I, I think is 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 fair. It's reasonable. I think it's true for Meta and, and for Alphabet as well, if you look yeah. at the language that they have used. I don't think there is... I, the, the kind of mealy mouth, uh, um, very soft language is gone. You, yeah. you have something completely different at this point. Yeah. 
you know, outrageous, unprovoked attack, invade, you know, or invasion, all of the language that the, the, the Russian government have instructed their media that they cannot use. And if they do use it, the Russian government will and have shut them down. Is that's the language that you're seeing in the tech company statements? And great. Uh, you know, we should welcome that. Um, so yeah, so, so there, there is. Uh, potential for them to to sort of go off into their own space, and using you and I will know this because we talked to Russian government people some years ago that when they were building their RUNET, RUNET, uh, and they've yeah. long had a plan where they carried out exercise where they would cut the Russian internet space off from the rest of the world. And again, for people outside Russia, may not not be aware that inside Russia. You know the the uh, uh, Google Facebook duopoly is actually a Yandex VK V contactor duopoly. So the the typical Russian, there's quite a divide actually. I think of the international community in Russia will yeah. tend to use the global products, and the but the the sort of mass market products in it within Russia are Russian, and and not accidentally the Russian government had an explicit policy of trying to encourage that. So. Again, it's a test case uh, as the extent to which they can genuinely make that work, and the extent to which people in Russia are happy about it. Um, but there does, there, there has been for a long time an explicit policy of trying to steer people to Russian companies. Exactly, imagining a scenario like this where the government would welcome <laughs> uh, uh, cutting itself off from all of the Western uh, products. It's kind of mind-boggling to think about that this has been ongoing together with the development of an alternative to SWIFT, which is called MIR, I think, peace, ironically, uh, has been going on for uh, more than seven or eight years. So it's it's sort of, it's been there in the open. They built that kind of independence into the system. And, and uh, I know that I reacted to it and thought that it was a weird thing, but I didn't see it as a precursor to planning for a war and international sanctions. And perhaps we should have been more paranoid, generally been more paranoid. But but let's go back to this question of RUNED, because here's, here's the thing. Uh, there was a letter um, this week to ICANN suggesting yes. that .ru, uh, the, the top domain for Russia, be cancelled and that any IP addresses within the allocation of Russia simply be blocked uh, so that Russia would effectively um, be removed from the internet completely. Uh, I can resist to that. And, yes. uh, I think we both agree that that was for good reason because the alternative would have been exactly what you said. The, the, you would have forced Russia into a North Korean architecture where they had their own version of the internet and there was no touch points outside. So how do you balance this? Because in one way, you don't want propaganda to spread. And in the other way, you don't want to create an entirely isolated information ecology. How? What's the yeah. what's the right balance uh, there? I mean, I think the basic addressing you, you want them to be part of a basic common addressing system. Uh, and again, if, yeah, the North Korean example. If we had the choice, looking at them and said, would we want North Korea to be signed into the worldwide? domain system and using you know being part of the common internet space i think we'd say yes like the problem is that they're outside so to force somebody out of the common or to force the entire population outside of the common internet space i think probably does more harm than good it's a bit like the debate about whether the app store should be available but even more at a fundamental basic level so if if they're uh, in a completely independent network that's going to make it much harder for information to get in from outside as well as preventing information getting out from you know propaganda getting out from there to the wider world so i don't think that is the answer is cutting them off from the address space but i do think you know aggressive action around 
uh, misinformation propaganda is just, I mean, it's justified at any time, but even more so now. Um, so there are right. other ways, and, and you've seen some announcements of people taking down fake accounts and things like that. Um, interestingly, you know, you kind of look at who's involved, the cast of characters, and then the, some of the names of the people being sanctioned that pop up are, are the names of the people that sponsored those bot farms, the ones that, uh, uh, for people who are not familiar, the bot farm is the is the building full of people sitting at terminals creating thousands of Twitter and Facebook accounts and things and trying to blast out propaganda. So so those those bot farms, those kind of people, I think you need very aggressive in internet security terms action to prevent that, and uh, um, that should s- certainly be part of the equation. But I think cutting them off from the internet space, it, uh, you know, say it does more harm than good. And that's and that's the point that where the balance tips over for the individual Russian citizen, um, removing um, removing some of the apps, shutting off some of the economic activity, making it harder to interact with the worldwide economy, those things. But the basic infrastructure of connection, that's something that we still do want to preserve. Does that seem right? Yes, and 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 again, if you if you're looking at those people, they you know they may well be using these Russian services inside Russia already. Uh, by the way, if they do that, that, that means from a Russian government point of view that their surveillance mechanisms can be uh, extraordinarily easily implemented. It also means that the censorship regimes can be uh, implemented again. And if people are listening who, who don't know the story, it's worth looking at the story of this guy, Pavel Durov, who, who uh, is now known for um, being the, the creator of the service Telegram, which which is being widely used at the moment as a, a kind of alternative social media channel but Pavel Durov was originally with this company VKV contactor and was forced out uh, as the Kremlin moved in as as people close to President Putin came in and took over the social media platform and so yes however nervous we are about um, Mark Zuckerberg running the social media platform you know the the sort of rough equivalent would have been you know Donald Trump forcing Mark Zuckerberg out and putting Steve Bannon in as the uh, as the person running uh, uh, um, uh, Facebook in the United States, and that's effectively what happened over there. And Pavel Durov left uh, Russia and created Telegram. But you know, if we cut them off from the global internet space and they had no access to any of the other services, the one that they're left with <laughs> is this one that the Kremlin very carefully took over a few years ago, uh, where everything you know, I'm sure they can get their hands on any data that flows through that system. Yes. The, and, and so if we look at the different services and we look at how they've been, uh, one, one of the things that struck me was the, that all of the map providers went out and said that they've temporarily made uh, certain map data unavailable. Uh, explain why to us. Yeah, I think that's been cautious. So there's data, particularly it's the sort of live traffic information that you get on mapping services. And, and the perception was that that may cause some risk uh, in that if you're a... Uh, well, let's, it's only really in one direction. If the Russians were studying that live traffic data, that might be useful to them in planning their invasion. Uh, and so the, the, there was a sort of safety first view, which said, let's just take some of that data out. Uh, interestingly, you've now seen the, the, a, a satellite company. I, I suspect it's kind of a, a little bit of marketing on their part that is pushing out all these photos of the Russian convoys going in. Uh, uh, t- to the Ukraine, um, so there's this. I think it's Maxar they're called, and they where there's a they've sort of now become associated with these photos. This long com- convoy um, that's going into the Ukraine. 
but but that's so there are people doing stuff that data is still being collected it still exists but it's not necessarily being integrated into the consumer mapping products um, the other thing we should say, and I, I don't have any particular insight into this, um, but my working assumption is that there's a huge amount of behind-the-scenes cooperation going on where the United States National Security Agency will be able to go to the companies, uh, the tech companies, and and work with them. And I think most people would accept it. This is good NSA as opposed to bad NSA. But the you know the National Security Agency of the United States will be working to collect as much data as it can in order to assist the Ukrainian government. Uh, and that will include geographic data, mapping data, traffic data, all that kind of stuff. And within the US legal framework, because it's about persons outside of the US or non-American persons, that data sharing is relatively, from a legal point of view, I think, straightforward. So I have no direct insight, but I'm sure that's uh, uh, that there's going to be some conversations taking place between uh, US security agencies and the tech companies, and that they may be um, providing actually quite valuable assistance to the Ukrainian government. But you ain't going to see that on your Google map, because that's too high risk for that to be put out into the public domain. I, so that's interesting. I think you're pointing to something that I I, uh, I believe is is uh, another aspect of this that we haven't discussed, and that is that it seems as if uh, technology companies in general can be helpful to the defending side. Uh, they they could, if they wanted to, they could take active measures um, and perhaps try to target Russian citizens with information in this case, which wouldn't be misinformation, but information. And uh, I think the most palpable example of this is Elon Musk sending a whole yes. set of trucks filled with Starlink, his satellite version of the internet, to Ukraine. So yeah. there's suddenly you have... You have, there's like a, there's, I think it's a defensive capability, but still a capability that's being brought to this country under attack from the tech companies. Do you think we'll see more of that? I think we we'll see some, although, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's a great gesture and everything should be welcome. But I, I think, uh, you know, the, the, key, the key thing is whether that uh, core infrastructure survives. So I think the satellite stuff sort of helps with the margins. But there, there's a lot of core internet infrastructure, uh, and yeah. actually, I don't know if you remember when um, when the Russia took over Crimea back in 2014. There, were, there was quite a mess then. That I remember we were dealing with because uh, you had Russian telecoms companies that owned the Ukrainian infrastructure and kind of vice versa. They were very entwined pre Crimea. I think they've disentangled now, so that the Russian uh, uh, companies do not own the Ukrainian telecoms infrastructure, but it's quite messy. Um, and again, I think there's a really important set of questions there for a lot of the uh, uh, um, companies, telecoms companies outside of Russia and the Ukraine who provide those services or provide uh, uh, either software or hardware um, for those products. And I saw again on the on the uh, we are not doing business list you'll see ericsson i think has appeared on there and i think cisco has as well so uh, they're also getting they're pulling in those kind of companies so uh starlink stuff is great and very positive but we shouldn't um take our eye off the main event which is what's happening with the mobile networks in those countries and are those able to stay up but i'd like to just the other example of that that I found interesting was during the 2008 invasion of Georgia, mm. um, where uh, where 
what happened effectively was that there was a cyber attack against the country taking down newspapers and different kinds of news outlets, etc., forcing the country to go dark. The newspapers then moved to the cloud. And there's been a series of articles since uh, highlighting the role that Google played uh, at the time uh, by by simply providing a cloud infrastructure that could not be DDoSed. Uh, it could not be a denial of service attacked in the same way as the individual service of the news companies could be. In that case, um, providing the kind of defensive infrastructure uh, helped Georgia still communicate or free media do you we think we should we talked about bans we talked about taking things down we talked about discontinuing different kinds of ties with the russian economy do you think we'll see the the tech companies take more active measures in terms of how they could help again with the example of of information or perhaps resilience through internet connections etc yeah, do you think I- that's coming next I think that hosting point. I think that hosting point is really important. I think there is we're starting to see signs of that already. That what's really important is you're bearing witness to to the atrocities that happen in a situation like this. And you're right um, with the modern technology, modern hosting, a, a lot of the platforms. Again, we sh- we should recognise the value of the large platforms here. That all it takes is somebody with a a, a small personal device and any kind of connection. And once that content is uploaded, if it's uploaded to a very robust uh, major global platform, there is nothing the Russians can do to stop it being distributed. And that wouldn't have been the case before when you you know, you know, had to distribute your own content or, or if you were putting it onto local infrastructure that itself was vulnerable. So I think there's a huge uh, value there in, in those cloud services. And they say this ability that once it's uploaded – if it's uploaded to a major provider who's got the infrastructure, then it ain't going to get stopped, um, and we should we should treasure that. I mean, the flip side is the misinformation gets pushed out through the same platforms, but we should we should also celebrate uh, the fact that we do now have an infrastructure that makes witnessing global atrocities unstoppable uh in a true truly technical sense and um, documenting them, yeah, and documenting, yeah, yeah you they, they cannot be you cannot prevent that documentation from getting out there. Uh, which is important when you see the, the discussions about war crimes currently uh, up and running. Because you, um, if this at some point ends up being investigated as a war crime, the evidence gathered in that manner will be crucial, I think, in many yeah. ways. But, but, but here's, here's, here's the follow-up question. The reason I ask this question is that, you know, if, if um, we were still advising um, platforms, I suspect that someone at this point would have said, we can do what we're doing right now, but everything we're doing will be held against us by all of the other countries who already suspect that we're just the technological arm of the U.S. government. So how how would you react to that? You're in the room, somebody says this and says, we need to be careful with our response here, measured and proportionate, because everything we do now essentially confirms the fears of many other nations that we're just the extended technological arm of the U.S. military. Yeah. I mean, we would go through conversations like that, and then ultimately, you, you you just have to say, yeah, but you know, sometimes we have to make our own decisions. Sometimes we have to take sides, and and if we're not willing to, like, why are we in this business at all? And and here is just a case where you can take sides. It is so clear. And again, the water boundary will say, but what about you know the Middle East or the invasion of Iraq or like? There's lots and lots of other examples where where I you know decisions were made by governments to take military action that I think are problematic. But this one, 
it feels so stark and so clear that is you know to not take sides uh would be a dereliction of duty uh mm. is not one way you can refuse to take sides and damn the consequences like if if further down the track you have more difficult conversation with government fine but but you're having a difficult conversation about an honest position because i think what we're saying is if any other you know uh similar situation occurred and, and again um, sort of unpick it this is where an autocratic regime invades a peaceful democratic neighbor uh for no solid reason that the peaceful democratic neighbor has not attacked them has never caused them uh, a problem you know that is a unique set of circumstances I I marched against the war in Iraq because I live in a country where I can do that. And I said the government were terrible and I wasn't going to do that. And I disagree with it fundamentally. But I can still see that there is a difference. Uh, and the difference being that it was a you know democratic country's uh, Tuesday military action. People still died and it was awful, but they were choosing to attack an autocratic regime uh, on the basis of harms, documented harms, not necessarily all of them. Uh, turn out to be as documented. And again, I disagree with that, but there were definitely, you know, there were abuses being committed. Saddam Hussein was a, a ruler who had absolute power and had become absolutely corrupt. And so that is different. <laughs> uh, so, but I say, so in this case, whatever you would do in any other circumstance, this one seems so stark and so apparent that to not act is a dereliction of duty and you have to you know, ask why does your company exist at all? <laughs> How can it, you know, have any kind of set of values if it's not prepared to take an action here? Yeah, uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think, I think the challenge will be that that clarity that we live in, in the present moment will fade and will become less clear as this goes on and other things happen. And at that point, there will be a lot of really difficult decisions to make. So the platform moderators might actually have had their easiest days now at the beginning of this process, and a lot of harder questions will be coming up so, in the coming weeks and months and perhaps even years, it seems. Yeah, you're right. So, th so that's something that we're going to see, and we should set the expectation that will be individual content decisions that cause outrage because they seem wrong. And again, we had to deal with this back, back in the day in 2014 with, mm. you know, there, there is, and again, fact straight, there is a far-right group in the, United, in, in the Ukraine that actually is smaller than the far-right groups in many other countries. So just to knock on the head, this claim mm. from the Russians that he needs to go and denazify Ukraine. Ukraine is not Nazified, but it has a small, violent, horrible, ugly far-right, just as Britain does, just as the United States does, just as many other countries do. But the problem you then got is when that horrible, ugly far-right uh, uh, starts posting or wanting to have a presence on the platforms, based on their global standards, they shouldn't allow them to. The fact that they're a horrible, ugly far-right that is fighting the Russian oppressor doesn't make them good. You know, two, two, two wrongs don't make a right. And so again, but you can imagine they're going to hit the situation where they're going to be taking out or, or denying a presence to some people in Ukraine and they're going to get attacked and go, why the hell are you, you know, uh, taking out the patriotic Ukrainians? And that's just because they're far-right, you know. Um, and to say, Reminder again, a very small minority of the people in the Ukraine, but we had to deal with it. There's another set of rules always there um, that distinguish between uh, government and uh, irregular military forces. And so this used to come up in the Israel-Palestine situation that people would say, why is the Israeli army allowed a presence? And why are 
groups, Hamas and groups on the other side, not allowed a presence on a platform. And the difference is the Israeli army is a legitimate whether you agree with them or disagree with them, they are a legitimate organ of a legitimate state. The Syrian government, you know, apart from when they were sanctioned, but for a long time, the Syrian government were not automatically uh, disbarred from the platforms, whereas some Syrian armed opposition groups were because they were irregular. They were not part of a, a government. And so, again, you can see there, we're going to get into some quite messy situations over time. I and mean, let's pray to God that the, the situation resolved before we get there. But if this is a long-running dispute, then then um, the platforms are going to be dealing with this quite messy scenario where they might be appear to being biased against some elements in Ukraine or you know, being questioned as to why they allow the Russian government uh, uh, certain presence on the platform or treat Russian military uh, content differently from I- irregular military content and so on. And how do you deal with an occupied Ukraine in terms of offering services or making sure that some services are not available? And the whole situation of occupation is one that I think most companies have never dealt with. And I'm sure there are people now writing very lengthy memos about how to think about a country, a democracy occupied by an aggressor and what to do with content moderation decisions there. That's going to be really hard. And I think that the harder questions are still to to come. But let's, so so, uh, in order to end on an even less cheerful note, let's talk a little bit about nuclear war. Mm. So one of the things that that I didn't think would happen again during my lifetime would be that I woke up worrying about whether or not the world would end up in in a nuclear holocaust. And, um, you know, I, I sort of thought that the doctrine of mutual assured destruction was was a thing of the 80s when we all as school kids were sheltered every month in order to prepare for nuclear attack on Stockholm uh, for That's unclear right. reasons because I don't think we could have come out of the shelters, frankly. And the, the, the fact that nuclear war is now on the agenda again and that it's sort of been discussed seems to me to be, at first it seems to me to be a horror, but I'd like to ask a question around it. And that is, do you think we're safer now because of the internet in terms of information flows, in terms of the ability to discuss than we were in the 80s? Do you think the risk yeah. is less because of the internet, the, because of the information flows we have than it was in the 1980s? I think so. I think the more that we talk about it, the more we are horrified by the idea, and and that is helpful. I think there was something mysterious, and I'm just like you. I'm the same generation. I would. I remember you know waking up sweating as a teenager if there was a thunder, a particularly violent thunderstorm, and thinking the bomb has gone off, and and we had this ridiculous propaganda from the government telling us to get under our kitchen tables with buckets of water and you know cover them with tablecloths. And I'm horrified. Yeah, my kids are there the other day asking me about nuclear war and they'd never asked about it and i suddenly realized that yeah yeah, it's been put on their agenda and another reason to be furious at that absolutely corrupt man with his absolutely corrupt uh, administration i mean a couple of thoughts one is it it shows um how when you do something you should follow through there was a, a lot of arms control uh, a lot of arms reduction took place uh, with the end of the Cold War, but we took our foot off the pedal um, and, and we didn't really follow through. We allowed that to drift. And so there are still far too many arms in the world. Again, Ukraine, I think, with, with um, some reason, you know, rightly complains that they did their bit. They signed up for arms control and their nuclear weapons disappeared. But we, we clearly 
left both the United States and uh, Russia with far too many nuclear weapons, and 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 you see the numbers now, and it's horrifying. It's the same mutually assured destruction now as it was then, which actually surprised me to some extent. He's somebody who's involved in politics, but I'd kind of taken my eye off the ball. So that's horrific. Um, but it, is it is it less like I think I think in some ways it is. Yes, when we had the previous missile crises and these near misses. It was a little bit more mysterious. There was a, you know, the public was getting very partial information. Uh, it didn't necessarily understand what's, what was going on all the time. Uh, it wasn't being talked about as much. There may be an argument to be even had, there may be an argument the other side to say, look, it's easier to make mistakes now because there's too much chatter. But I actually think, on balance, again, mm-hmm. it, I, I do believe that talking about this stuff. Uh, and talking about how ridiculous and, and horrific it would be to launch a nuclear war lessens it versus this being something that is just, you know, being discussed by the powers that be in in their uh, sort of private circles. I, I think it's, it is better that the public's involved in the conversation, even if that means, you know, horrifying our children, um, uh, which is, you know, quite a price to pay. It is. And I think the the risk, of course, is that the rumor mill, uh, misinformation, disinformation thing starts something that, that we can't control. But I also think that it's been good in the sense that it's brought this to everyone's attention very fast. And it's made everyone, frankly, rightly afraid. Uh, so it, polling now shows that uh, most of the Western countries are more afraid than they have been since the Second World War. Individual citizens feel more fear. Yeah. And I think th- that fear in this case might actually not be a bad thing because yeah. it's real. And it's unfortunately it's... something that that reflects the, the risks that we're facing. But I think that might actually be good because that yeah. might help us to sort of really uh, deal with this in a better way. So yeah. I, I would I side with you there. I think that we're better off with the kinds of information flows and the connected information scape that we have today than we were in the 1980s. Because at that time, it felt as if those decisions and the decision makers were completely opaque, right? Yeah. And and, yeah, and just to yeah, close on that note, and, and a note on misinformation, there is a risk that people say, well, you can't trust anything because some information mm. is going to be untrustworthy. And and therefore, you can't trust anything. And actually, we've got to be super careful because that's playing into the hands of the aggressors in this case so that you know there will there are already there are uh, images coming out of ukraine that actually aren't anything to do with the ukraine conflict that have been recycled from other conflicts and people have, have tracked them down those who who are apologists for the russian government will go well you see they're fake images therefore you can't trust anything well no you can trust some things some things are good and some things are misinformation and actually it is a time to and go back to basics and recognize that there are trusted news sources that you know there are organizations that will take time to verify those images and again it's on all of us i think to to be turning to and working with those trusted news organizations right now not to stop the flow not to turn the internet off but to apply a filter which says I want the internet to flow. I want that that person in the ukraine to be able to send their information out through mass social media channels Mm -hmm. but i also uh, will be skeptical until I've seen that it's been verified by somebody who is good at verifying information, and I'm going to make sure I identify those sources and I, I trust these people. But don't shut it down. Like that's the again, 
you suddenly see that rhetoric of saying, well, it, you know, it's just a, it's just so full of misinformation that you've got to shut it down. But no, like the bad guys win <laughs> when you shut it down. Um, we've got to keep these channels open, but apply a filter that allows us to sort the good information from the misinformation. And that actually also makes us safer. And individual responsibility is key, uh, even more so now than in, in peacetime misinformation discussion. So I very much agree with that. So we are the, um, wrapping this up. You can say that we are, we're with a completely unparalleled moment in time. And we've seen that many of the tech players and many, almost everyone, I think, in Western society have acted with extreme clarity. We predict that clarity will be more complicated as time goes on, uh, but we think that there is a there is a, a lot that's, that seems to suggest uh, that for the foreseeable future, um, we will actually see a large, we will see enormous unity around these decisions going forward. What is the what is the one thing that has surprised you most in 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 this situation? Where sort of what is the one thing that you feel that you? I mean, there's so many things, I suppose. But yeah, you know, I mean, was the having looked at the response? Was it the time, the swiftness? What what sort of? Yeah, I mean. Just from the tech company point of view, so now there's you know, so much going on, but just on the you know, our subject, yeah. it was the fact that they were prepared to almost be ahead of where governments are. So if if the classic stance of tech companies has been, you know, the, and this is the criticism, I think there's some validity to be dragged kind of kicking and screaming into doing the right thing when governments make them do it, put enough pressure on. I actually, I, I was pleasantly surprised by the fact they were prepared to move really quite quickly and and uh, uh, so almost at times being ahead of where governments were uh, um, or, uh, and where their strict legal obligations were. Um, it's, mm. it's, yeah, you, you just look at it, you sort of go out there and look and it's like, you know, all of them, uh, uh, Meta, Alphabet, Microsoft, TikTok, uh, Twitter's now implementing the EU, Twitter's perhaps at the sort of more compliance end of things, but even they've moved very quickly to implement the EU ban. These things happened in hours <laughs> that previously, when we were there, would have been debated for weeks. And part of the company's response would have been, oh, and even if you change the law, it's going to take us weeks to implement it. But no, like they're ready. They're like straight out the door. And that that has surprised me. I d didn't think that would be the case. Yes. So on that note, we close, but we also close with um, with thoughts for and hopes for a much, much more happy future. Um, definitely, this has been a this has been a, a somber session. Um, thank you for listening. You can find the website, uh, the, the podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Thank you for listening and tune in again with the next episode.